Mark Lint, director of the project on Middle East political science. Welcome to the Middle East political science podcast. On this week's episode, we first talk to Middlebury's Shebnem Jamusju about her new book, Democracy or Authoritarianism, Islamist Governments in Turkey, Egypt, and Tunisia, which is published by Cambridge University Press. We then turn to a roundtable on the upcoming Turkish election with three wonderful scholars of Turkey. We talk to Liesel Hintz. Then we talk to Shebnem Yardumjugekci from the University of Bonn. And finally, Harun Erjan uh, from SUNY Binghamton. Uh, thank you so much for listening to our podcast. the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Shebnem Gumushu of Middlebury College and author of the brand new Cambridge University Press book, Democracy or Authoritarianism? Islamist Governments in Turkey, Egypt, and Tunisia. Shebnem, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. So tell us a little bit about the book and uh, what you're trying to achieve with it. Yeah, so this is a comparative study of three Islamist parties in Turkey, Egypt, and Tunisia, as the title actually tells. And what I'm trying to do here is to see if the democratic commitments that these parties expressed before coming to power actually held up by the same parties after they attained power in free and fair elections in all three countries. So that's the overarching uh, theme and the goal of, of the book. And frankly, we had a lot of debate and discussion in the scholarship before these parties could achieve power, whether or not they were democratic, whether or not they were committed to democratic rights and civil liberties. And we did not have any kind of you know, way of testing those claims uh, before these parties rise to power. So right. my goal is like, OK, we have this opportunity now. Let's test these claims and whether or not these parties as expressed as they expressed. Uh, earlier, uh, their democratic commitments, uh, did they stay on that democratic path? And uh, that is the goal. And uh, I had lots of different findings uh, that kind of, you know, contested some of the things that we thought about these Islamist parties. So uh, there were some interesting insights there. But I'm also trying to come up with a new understanding of uh, Islamist parties uh, that's kind of, you know, different from more uh, inclusion, moderation uh, arguments, more like an you know, individual level transformation Islamist, you know, activists, or more kind of, you know, uh, macro explanations of, oh, there's an external uh, factor that changes the entire strategy of a singular party and then push them in one particular direction. So I'm trying to find a kind of, you know, a, a, a way to unpack Islamist parties' commitment to democracy in between these two more individualistic explanations and more macro-structural explanations. Now, you talked about the inclusion-moderation uh, debate, which was quite prevalent in the literature for quite some time, and you prefer to talk about democracy rather than moderation. Tell us why. Yeah, so uh, all of us who have studied uh, moderation uh, in the context of Islamist parties, we have a lot of critique of the concept of, the concept of moderation because it's really fuzzy, it's really hard to kind of, you know, uh, it's all comprehensive. There are many different aspects of moderation. It can be about policy. It can be about regime uh, commitments. It can be about any single thing about politics. It can be about methods. It can be about tactics. So moderation of what? It was too broad and vague and was not analytically helpful for us to understand Islamist parties' uh, trajectories. So I'm kind of, you know, going through 
for a much narrow uh, understanding, maybe kind of you know, one way of you know looking at moderation, and I'm unpacking democratization and democratic commitments instead. But democracy itself has multiple meanings. And one of the big arguments you make in the book is like distinguishing between those who are only committed to the electoral process and those who are committed to something more. Absolutely. So that's what I'm trying to do by looking at different conceptualizations and understandings of democracy. Perhaps this is one of the major contributions of the book too. So uh, Islamist parties, unlike major skeptics who actually think that Islamists usually hijack democratic processes. And as Lewis once formulated, it's going to be one time affair. There will be no repeat elections in the future once Islamists are in power. So indeed, Islamists are, mainstream Islamists at least, are very much committed to electoral politics. But their understanding of democracy is very much uh, majoritarian in orientation. So that's one of the key findings of the book. Uh, we already knew that, but we also kind of need to understand that that's not the only perception of democracy or commitment to democratic principles, we also have more liberal voices and tendencies within these Islamist parties, and they go for pluralism, engagement, deliberation, compromises, power sharing, that we do not necessarily see among those who commit to more electoral understanding of democracy. Before we get to your actual arguments about why that is, um, let's talk a little bit about the cases. It's an interesting, uh, the Tunisia-Egypt comparison is quite common uh, in recent years. But Turkey added in is something which really gives it a really distinctive um, a feel in terms of what you're comparing and how you think about it. Talk about the cases, why you chose them, and what you think you get, what leverage you get from those three cases. Yeah. So you're right in the sense that as soon as the Arab uprising started in 2011, we had a lot of comparative studies of Egypt and Tunisia, Muslim Brotherhood and Nahda. So uh, that was pretty much kind of, you know, almost a lab environment for political scientists who study Middle East politics. Uh, Turkey was always kind of, you know, treated as a separate uh, country because it is not part of the Arab world. It has a very different political history and trajectory. Uh, many things actually kind of, you know, have, they have a lot in common with Tunisia and Egypt, especially in terms of their modernization, in terms of state building and nation building going back to the 19th century. Uh, but there are also significant differences that goes back to democratization of Turkish politics back in the 1950s. So that was kind of you know, quite distinctive. So many people do not necessarily see Turkey in that you know, uh, league mm -hmm. of countries mm -hmm. that can be comparable in the Middle East. But I think um, AKP and the tradition, the Islamist movement for, uh, that AKP belongs to, the national outlook, is very much kind of you know, comparable to Muslim Brotherhood or Anahta. And there are very interesting uh, similarities, actually, despite all these differences that we observe in democratization uh, histories um, in terms of nation building, again, modernization, secularization, Republican regimes being established by military, you know, figures or like, you know, uh, nationalist elite. So there are kind of you know, significant uh, similarities there that kind of you know, narrow uh, important factors and, and then allow for some kind of comparative study. And AKP also was quite interesting at the time when Ennahda and Muslim Brotherhood won elections after Arab uprisings, they usually talked about the AKP experience. So mm -hmm. the AKP was like, you know, a case that accomplished 
um, bringing Islamic democracy together. That was a synthesis that the AKP was quite proud of. And there were a lot of talk about Turkish model at the time. And NATO officials were very much kind of eager to present themselves as a new AKP in Tunisia. Some Muslim Brotherhood members actually had some kind of you know, reservations about the AKP experience, but still there was some kind of you know, desire to show that both Muslim Brotherhood and Ennahda could become another AKP in their own countries. So uh, all of that political discourse uh, and also some uh, structural similarities kind of you know, encouraged me to think about, okay, what do we take out of these experiences? So Ennahda and Muslim Brotherhood are definitely comparable in a number of different respects. AKP is also interesting because it shows within case variation. Mm -hmm. So the party is established as a more moderate, conservative Democrat party in, in 2001. And it sticks to that kind of you know, understanding of more liberal understanding of democracy after soon after it comes to power. But we see that kind of you know, quickly dissipates after 2007, more so after 2011. So that is kind of a very important within case variation where the early years of the party was very much liberal in orientation, but later switches to much more majoritarian understanding of democracy. Now, that's really interesting. Um, why don't we turn to your major argument now? Because it's really quite a novel in terms of the approach, I think which is, you know, as I understand it, to really kind of look at the party, take the party seriously as an organization instead of just an abstract carrier of ideas. So tell us about your theory and, you know, what you gain by looking inside the parties. Yeah. So uh, what we know thus far in terms of Islamist parties and Islamist activist commitments to democracy is either very much about at the individual level, right? So uh, Islamist activists enter political life. Sometimes they face with inclusion. Sometimes they face exclusion and repression. And all those experiences we have uh, studied in the scholarship actually tells us that at the individual level, you know, people change. People change their ideas, their uh, uh, positions, political uh, preferences, and so on and so forth. So we already know quite a bit about that. But we did not necessarily have a lot of, of um, uh, scholarship on aggregation of those individual experiences and, and positions. So all individual, you know, activists, in this case, Islamists, have their own experiences, but we really do not know a lot, a lot about like the, how those individual experiences translate into political party behavior. So that was one of the key questions that I had. And then we have a more macro structural, uh, large balance of power explanations like, you know, Muslim Brotherhood and NATO or AKP actually changed their uh, trajectories or adapt their strategies uh, dependent on the macro forces. So if you have a strong military, then they will behave and they will remain committed to democracy. But if you have a weaker military, then they will just like, you know, become autocratic, you know, uh, again, because Islamism is essentially, you know, autocratic. So in between these two uh, explanations, we actually have a third alternative. And that's, you know, what I'm trying to build as my theory in this book is that Actually, all these Islamist parties are factionalized. They have very significant differences within different groups with very different understandings of, of uh, democracy. Uh, some adhere to more electoral understandings and others more, you know, adhere to more liberal understandings. And whatever is happening at the uh, outside of the party, they respond to those external shocks or events in very different ways. So they are not in agreement in any way or, or form, uh, but they come may come to an agreement through that internal 
struggles for power and influence and establishing internal alliances uh, among different factions. So depending on these uh, internal balances of power, we can basically explain both aggregation of individual preferences and, and commitments to democracy, but at the same time, the trajectory of the party, because any external event can lead to multiple different pathways for the party, but one becomes a dominant strategy because of internal balances of power. So uh, maybe I can give an example. Sure. So when, when the protest started uh, in all three countries, basically simultaneously in summer 2013, uh, all three parties actually had very different understanding, but different factions within each party also had a very different understanding and reading of those popular mobilization against their uh, organizations. So some uh, liberal factions within these parties were like, no, okay, this is completely fine. This is part of democratic politics. Perhaps we should hear what these people have to say and respond accordingly. And then more electoral majoritarian uh, factions within these parties were much like, you know, this is com completely unacceptable. We cannot accept any kind of popular protest to challenge our electoral legitimacy because we won these elections. So there were all these different understandings within these organizations and uh, from their infighting came the dominant trajectory and strategy of the party rather than these different external forces imposing one particular strategy on them. So internal party uh, fights and struggles and factional uh, alliances and domination of one particular faction over others is really the key to understand when and how these parties commit to democratic politics and what kind of democratic politics they will follow. The one thing I like, though, is that it's not just like an abstract argument and debates. It's really, you know, who controls the resources, who controls the organization itself. And that that kind of meso level approach to things is, um, I think, where you get a lot of real analytical leverage. Exactly. That that was the hope. So I, I'm glad you you kind of, you know, uh, can can detect that there. So the idea was to kind of, you know, OK, if it's all about uh, factional fighting and factional dominance within these organizations. So what determines which faction will prevail at the end of the day? And there I borrow significantly from uh, Panibianco's seminal work in 1988. He unpacks all these organizational resources. So I kind of you know, carry that over to Islamist party analysis and I, I trace uh, organizational resources. Uh, who controls those organizational resources? So what are these resources? We're talking about recruitment and promotion within the party. We're talking about financial uh, resources, uh, party finances. We're talking about rules, like you know, bylaws, elections within the party. We're talking about internal communication, but also external communication attached to that internal communication. Uh, so there are all these important resources, organizational resources, depending who controls uh, you know, these resources, they will come up with more power and they can dominate the party by building alliances among different groups fence sitters, even their rivals, they can basically build these incentive structures using these resources and then invite different parts of the party, uh, different factions, different groups within the party, join their own alliance and then set the course of the party. So your main positive case here is probably Anahta in, in Tunisia. So when, let's walk through that a little bit. And why is it that you see these kinds of liberal understandings of democracy winning out in the factional battles in Anahta? Well, so Anahta uh, is really interesting because usually we kind of see it as a liberal Islamist party uh, all along. 
But the history of the party actually tells us otherwise, because in 1980s, when Ennahda first formed, first MTI, like the you know, Islamic Tendency Movement, later they uh, rebrand their movement as, as Ennahda, uh, those years were very much kind of, you know, a fight between more radical voices within uh, the Islamist movement versus more democratic tendencies. So Ganushi was nowhere in, in commanding the entire party organization because they had some kind of, you know, uh, issues in controlling organizational resources. Only after that conflict between, you know, uh, the party and Ben Ali, the party finds itself in exile. Many of its leaders are in exile. Others are in, in, in Tunisian prisons. In exile, we see that kind of, you know, transition uh, of the party organization. Although it is very small, uh, when you think about the exile, you know, organization, uh, we see the liberal voices within starting to recapture and regain organizational control. That becomes quite solid as soon as uh, the uh, party actually goes through its second founding in 2012. So right after the um, revolution, uh, and not the leaders uh, return from exile, and they combine forces and 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 uh, with local and not the uh, members in the country, and they start rebuilding the uh, party organization. And there we actually see a lot of important resources accumulating in the hands of of liberal uh, leaders, Ganushi first and foremost, but also his allies among liberal uh, groups within the organization, and they control party rules. They control uh, party lists, recruitment and promotion channels. For example, those um, and not the MPs that were quite kind of, you know, had diverse opinions in the first constituent assembly. They were all sidelined in, in 2014 electoral lists. So uh, Sharan uh, Greval actually had an amazing uh, study on this. He basically shows how every single person who voted for Sharia rule in the constituent, uh, the new constitution, they were just, you know, taken off the lists in, in 2014 uh, elections. So the leadership when you control the leadership and recru recruitment and promotion channels in the party, you have a lot of leverage over uh, who's going to get promoted, who's going to be a part of the exec executive bureau, who's going to be part of the new uh, assembly, you know, and not the parliamentary group. So all of this is really kind of you know, strong incentive structures that you can build. So the liberal leadership could quickly establish those resources capture those resources and then establish that incentive structure, basically rewarding liberal allies and also kind of you know, giving incentive to those fence sitters to join the liberal alliance uh, and also marginalizing more uh, majoritarian voices in the party. Uh, and Nata's case is interesting because it's kind of you know, going hand in hand with the democratic transitional process. So uh, unlike the Muslim Brotherhood, for example, the internal conflicts are still ongoing as the transition also unfolds. So that's a very interesting case, a very dynamic case, but we see that that uh, the transitional process actually helps the liberal leaders, liberal Islamists, basically uh, marginalize more majoritarian voices and, and uh, reward uh, the, the liberals uh, within the party organization. Then maybe a second uh, important uh, turning point would be 2016 uh, and not the party convention and Congress where the party leaders actually kind of you know, establish a very solid control over all party branches and its mission and its ideology. So now the party is basically talking about Muslim democracy. It has a very separate distinction between uh, political affairs and religious practices. So uh, the, the majoritarian understanding is almost completely marginalized in the party by 2016.
again, use organizational resources like the party convention, rules within the party. We see several different things changing along the way in the bylaws that would uh, empower the liberal faction at the expense of the majoritarian faction. Whereas in Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood, the conservatives are in charge of the party apparatus and they basically just kick the liberals out. Yeah, exactly. And they did that way before the revolution, right? So that is the difference between perhaps and not then and Muslim Brotherhood, because that marginalization of liberal reform voices were already complete, complete, almost complete by uh, the revolution and by the time Mursi was elected. So uh, that was a very interesting kind of, you know, finding that uh, each party is actually going through its own uh, transitions and internal fighting in, in very different ways in very different fashions and, and through different, you know, uh, mechanisms. But at the end of the day, the old guard, what we call the, you know, more majoritarian faction or the wing in, in, in the Muslim Brotherhood is very much dominant all along, but they gain that dominance over time rather gradually through late 1980s and 1990s. And uh, maybe the final blow to the liberal reformists would be 2009 internal mm -hmm. elections, which many people claim was, was quite rigged. And again, manipulation of organizational rules, uh, Muslim Brotherhood bylaws very much kind of you know, manipulated in that sense. Recruitment and promotion through the 1990s was very much in favor of the old guard, the majoritarian understanding of democracy, and also um, resources. Uh, financial resources were increasingly in the control under the control of the uh, old guard. So then, I guess to complete the 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 kind of the three country comparison, then uh, let's talk about Turkey and how the AK AKP goes from being this like kind of liberal type of Europe focused um, party to what it kind of evolves into under Erdogan. Yeah. So uh, AKP's case is really puzzling because many people argue that, oh, you know, uh, this was just dissimulation, right? So uh, Erdogan was waiting for the right moment. Uh, the party was still quite weak vis-a-vis -vis the Turkish military. That's why they kind of you know, showed a much more liberal uh, face at the very beginning of their term. And later they switched to a more autocratic understanding of, of uh, democratic politics, like a you know, more majoritarian understanding. So I kind of you know, contest that claim. And I try to kind of, you know, introduce a much more nuanced understanding of AKP as a party and how it evolved over time. So at the very early stages, it was not a Erdogan dissimulating. He actually had not significant extensive control over the party organization. So uh, there was a very strong liberal wing that was based in Ankara, coming from uh, early, you know, members of the parliament from other, you know, Islamist parties. And their experiences actually informed a much more liberal understanding of, of democracy that was uh, embedded in the party platform. So when you go back and read the party platform that was established in 2001, it's an entirely different party than what we have as the AKP today. And the reason was that liberal faction that was dominating the core cadres of the party in the early stages were the ones who actually wrote the party platform. And they also wrote the party bylaws and that was very much democratic in orientation. There was significant emphasis on internal democracy. So they were very much pushing for a much more liberal position within and outside of the party for the Turkish you know, politics. So however, they lose that power very quickly and, and, and uh, extensively to Erdogan over the years. 
So Erdogan is coming from a different faction, a different wing of the party. He's based in Istanbul. He has a lot of resources from his uh, uh, municipal you know, service in Istanbul in 1990s. So he actually comes up with a very kind of you know, strong pushback against that liberal faction. And he starts to undermine the liberal position in the party and starts to empower his own faction. And uh, he increases his control over party rules. Uh, party elections, internal elections, uh, recruitment and promotion, especially promotion where he starts to promise all these high ranking positions to those people who would actually uh, ally with him and follow his understanding of politics, which is quite majoritarian. So uh, he also controls communication channels, internal communication channels, as well as external communication. Uh, he builds an empire of, of media and, 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 and whatnot with the support of private uh, resources, especially businessmen loyal to uh, Erdogan. So he kind of builds this extensive incentive structure that rewards his supporters and punish and sanction his uh, you know, opponents. So that is a kind of a very important transition from a liberal uh, dominated party from the early years of AKP to a very uh, electoralist majoritarian dominated party uh, after perhaps 2007, but definitely after 2011. Now this this goes a little bit beyond the book, but you know you, you really focus on kind of the the these party organizations or the movement organizations, but in both Egypt uh, under Sisi and now uh, Tunisia under uh, Kais Saeed, these organizations have been just torn apart and, um, you know, suffering extreme repression and and arrests and everything else. What how do you think about Islamists now that uh, those kinds of established institutions and organizations are no longer kind of structuring the way uh, they act and they think? That's a very good question. Uh, I've been thinking about this uh, a lot. Uh, so I really do not have a kind of, you know, <laughs> a, 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 a well-formulated answer. But a couple of things come to mind. One key thing is um, we know these party organizations had similar experiences, if not as, a, you know, extensive as deep. Uh, of repression, right? So this is not the first time and NATO or Muslim Brotherhood is going through an ordeal, right? So they have been exposed to significant repression before and they could come back from that. Yeah. So that is one thing that we may want to keep in mind. And another thing is important, uh, maybe this is a, a another opportunity for some of these cadres to, uh, for a, a, another founding moment that will happen in the near future or maybe, you know, medium term, where they can rebuild their organizations in light of a different uh, set of principles. So perhaps this is a, a transition for them as well. As they start to rebuild those organizations, they will have a new distribution of resources, new distribution of, of um, uh, principles and new factions forming because of this experience. And then we will see a new factional, perhaps kind of a struggle uh, with the aid of new resources coming in. So I expect that uh, if we see, when we see uh, a new Muslim Brotherhood or a new Nahta, doesn't have to be the same with the same names, mm -hmm. but a, a new reiteration of these organizations will again have a similar dynamic to them as we observed in, in the case of Muslim Brotherhood in the 1980s when they were trying to come back from Nasser's 
uh, and, and Sadat's repression, they uh, had that factional fighting, and then one faction prevailed over others. Uh, the same goes for Ennahda, right after the revolution, they had that opening and liberal factions could capture the party and then set a course for the organization at the expense of more majoritarian understandings. So uh, again, when we have these organizations coming back from this repression, uh, I expect to see similar dynamics at place uh, where they actually kind of, you know, use resources, new ideas, new principles to set the course of, of these uh, movements. That's interesting. I guess one last question is that, you know, again, one of the things which is so interesting about the book in, in kind of a meta sense is that it's, as I said before, it's quite unusual for Turkey to be included in the mix of parties that are studied. But it's more than that, though, since you actually have Turkey as your point of reference and, you know, from your own experience with the AK and everything. And I'm curious how that makes you look differently at the Muslim Brotherhood type organizations in the Arab world than scholars coming from the Arab world or coming from uh, the United States. I mean, what, what, what do you see that maybe we miss? That's hard to say, right? Um... <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what, what I can add there is, I think I tend to see, and this is not necessarily different uh, from what, what our, you know, other scholars actually see uh, in the case of Muslim Brotherhood or like, you know, from, if they're from the US or, or from uh, uh, the Middle East, uh, the Arab Middle East. So I, I, I think I tend to see Islamism as a, a, a democratic force. Uh, that has a lot to promise uh, for for democratic politics and expansion of democratic politics and inclusion of different groups of people. So uh, I'm not sure how novel yeah. or new that is. Uh, but I actually see it as a viable, normal electoral force in ways that students of the exactly. Arab world often don't. Yeah. yeah. So I, I tend to see Islamism as a strong force for uh, overall widespread acceptance of electoral politics. So they can be definitely a vehicle of inclusion of different groups of people and so, you know, groups of, of within these different societies in the electoral process, giving them that um, uh, democratic culture of participating in elections, in, in perhaps uh, attaining some kind of uh, culture of holding leaders accountable uh, if if they're elected and, and, and kind of you know, in the next election, they feel like, you know, OK, you did not do a good job, so I, I can you know hold you accountable. So establishing that electoral tradition, uh, maybe building some democratic stock and uh, pretty much sharing that understanding of, of uh, elections as a mechanism of holding uh, leaders accountable. Islamists, especially mainstream Islamists, can really play that role. Uh, but of course, the question is, what kind of democracy will that be? Is it going to be more majoritarian or will it have more pluralist and liberal, you know, uh, threads to it? That's the second question. But I kind of I think one of the major messages of this book is, is very much Islamists are not that that, you know, autocratic uh, leaders and, and, and regimes that we actually see in many different parts of the Arab world. It's not Qaysaid, it's not Sisi, it actually has a democratic core to it that comes through that electoral practice and the fact that they kind of, you know, are confident that they will win those elections. But still, I think that matters greatly. Well, it's really interesting. Uh, we've been speaking with uh, Shabnam Gumushu about her new book, Democracy or Authoritarianism.
This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's episode, we're going to talk about the Turkish election, which is scheduled for May 14th, and we brought together a roundtable of several political scientists and sociologists who can tell us a little bit about what to expect from the election, the stakes of a campaign, and the prospects for an opposition victory. We have three guests joining us. First, we have Liesl Hintz of Johns Hopkins University. Then we have Shebnem Yerodomjagechi uh, from the University of Bonn. And finally, Harun Erjan uh, from SUNY Binghamton. Um, and we'll start with uh, with Liesl Hintz. Um, Liesl, tell us a little bit about the election campaign, the election itself, and uh, you know what we should be looking at as we're trying to understand the prospects for meaningful change in Turkey as a result of this election. What matters here? Yeah, thank you so much, Mark, for for creating space for this discussion and for having us on. Um, I think, you know, the the question of the prospects for political change is really, really important. I think that we've seen the ruling Justice and Development Party, the AKP, has been in power for 21 years. And when they came into power in 2001, I think a lot of people thought that Turkey was on a democratizing trajectory. And what we've seen, although there was judicial reform and civil military reform um, and economic reform, and say opening for space to talk about the Kurdish question, Armenian genocide, uh, women can wear headscarves in universities and civil service, from about, clearly to the international public from 2013 on after the Gezi Park protests, but arguably even earlier, the AKP was engaging in a process of authoritarian consolidation of institutional takeover, of sort of vilifying and jailing of journalists, of academics, of really trying to reduce any kind of checks and balances against its rule. Um, And I think what we see in this election, therefore, is that the prospects are, I think, as significant as the 1950 elections, which was when we saw the country transition from single party authoritarian rule to multi-party democracy. What I think a lot in the opposition believe it's that this is kind of the, the last chance or the most important chance to try to prevent the AKP from fully consolidating authoritarian rule, moving past competitive authoritarianism. And, you know, really kind of um, closing off space for Kurds, for LGBTQ community, um, for any kind of criticism of of the government. So I think the stakes are super, super high. Um, One of the things I think that we want to look for in terms of sort of the, the way in which we can think about the elections is that it's absolutely clear that these are not fair elections. The question of whether they're going to be free is a little bit more up in the air in terms of can you cast your ballot for the party you want and does that get counted for the party that you voted for? But in terms of fair when we look at the drastic imbalance in media access, media coverage, we look at the AKP's influence over institutions like the judiciary, the Supreme Electoral Council, which in the past three, four years has ruled several times in the AKP's favor. When we look at the ways in which the AKP has criminalized, again, you know, criticism of it through, uh, you know, disinformation laws, insulting the presidency laws, social media laws, you know, this is really a skewed playing field. I think what we're going to be looking for on the day of the election and and what we're already seeing with massive turnout from what I'm hearing in some of the embassies abroad where citizens of Turkey can cast their votes is whether we're going to see any kind of election regularities. People from Turkey take their elections extremely seriously. Voting turnout is usually above 80 percent. 
So it's very difficult to kind of manipulate the votes at the polls. There's a lot of observers, there's international observers, there's uh, observers from opposition parties, from civil society groups like or Vote and Beyond. So I think what we're going to be looking at is to what extent can the AKP use the authoritarian tools in its toolkit to try to claim a victory. And we're already seeing sort of the rhetorical groundwork being laid for if this is an opposition victory, it's not legitimate, right? If it, if the opposition wins, this was a coup because it's Western sponsored, or if the opposition wins, it's because they worked with Kurds. And as we've been telling you since 2015, Kurds work with terrorists, right? This is the vilifying rhetoric that's been coming out of the AKP. So we're already kind of seeing not just the elections not being fair, but not being free either. And again, I think the influence, the AKP's influence over the Supreme Electoral Council is going to be really, really important to watch. So I think the stakes are really high. I think, uh, and I'm sure as others will discuss the opposition is, is doing its best to put forward the challenge and contest the elections as strongly as it can, but they have a really difficult sort of set of obstacles to overcome in doing that. Liesl, just one, one quick follow-up. Um, you know, we've been hearing about, uh, you know, Erdogan's autocratic consolidation for quite a long time now. And I, I feel like I've heard this, this is the last chance each at every election. What's different this time? Yeah, so we definitely heard that at the 2018 elections um, and and the 2018 elections, I'm hoping the opposition has learned a lesson from that. So what we saw there was um, it was under a state of emergency that had been in place since the 2016 coup. And Erdogan declares victory relatively early on in the evening. He does his balcony speech and based on unofficial votes. And the Supreme Electoral Council certifies and then says, yes, that is the case. We certify these elections based on unofficial votes. And then the opposition candidate, Muharrem Inje, who is the, the, the opposition's unity candidate, disappears. He concedes via WhatsApp message on live television to a journalist and then kind of disappears. Election observers go home and the AKP supporters pour out of the streets. I think what's different this time is I believe from, from talking to people in the opposition that they are ready for any, they, they've put preparations in place for any kind of potential, you know, okay, well, the ballot box has been moved or we're not gonna let people who've been displaced by the, displaced by the earthquake go back and vote in their uh, homes. I feel as though there's, there's a sense of optimism, but there's a more circumspect optimism and a level of preparedness that I think is different than, than what we saw in, in 2018. And I will say that since 2018, that there have been drastic rollbacks. Like there, there, there's been a, a very serious uh, authoritarian consolidation um, in terms of criminalization of the opposition, political uh, and civil society activists in jail. So I think there's a sense that the stakes are even higher. Well, it's a good transition. Um, Shevnam, can we talk a little bit about the opposition itself? What is it doing? Um, how is it organized? How is it trying to contest this um, this unbalanced playing field? Yeah, uh, thank you for having me, Mark. Uh, and Lisa made a perfect, I would say, summary of the process and like how we come today. Uh, I would say that like I agree with Lisa that like this is the elections in which uh, the the opposition maybe is 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 the first time very well prepared than ever 
And uh, I have to say that like this this week's uh, I agree with the this week's heading uh, cover page of the Economist that this is the most important election of 2023. Uh, this is not only the most important election for Turkey, but also I would say uh, globally in the sense that like we will be able to see whether strong ban can be beaten or not. Uh, but what I see is that like. Uh, what we are experiencing in Turkey at the moment in the election process is that we have two polar opposites. So one is like incumbent party, <clears throat> which presents uh, a regime which is only designed for Erdogan himself, uh, which can be even called uh, a very close to an autocratic system, autocratic regime. And on the other side, we have opposition, which is united, which covers uh, many different segments of society at the same time. Uh, and like which actually promises uh, democracy. So uh, in that sense, like the, the 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 election results will also tell us about which direction uh, the political regime in Turkey will take, either autocracy or democracy. So uh, and in that sense, I would say the opposition is very very aware of the importance of the elections, and uh, not only the opposition, and I would say the people at large are also uh, aware of this. That's why. Uh, there are like people observe. There are people who are joining civil society groups who are observing the elections, and uh, the parties themselves are well prepared to be there to follow the elections. So uh, I would say they are also well prepared to face uh, any kind of uh, electoral irregularities. So the opposition strategy and. As I said, this like there are two polar opposites, and this is also reflected in the whole campaign process. So while the incumbent follows uh, more of a negative campaign, uh, what we call negative campaign, in the sense that they vilify the opposition, they uh, try to relate them with uh, terror and terrorist groups, they try to say that they are supported by uh, Western powers. And just today, a video is released, uh, an, an interview with uh, President Biden, uh, and he is saying that they are together with the opposition and so and that is actually a very old video before he was even elected as the candidate of mm. the Democrat Party. So uh, they they tend to give this message that they are the real representatives of the Turkey and the opposition is uh, actually the, 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 the ones who are supported by the Western powers. Uh, but the opposition, on the other hand, contrary to that, follows a very positive campaign strategy. So by po positive campaign, what I'm referring is that, uh, first of all, the, the slogan of uh, Istanbul Mayor Imamoğlu has been carried here, her şey çok güzel olacak, which means everything is going to be great, everything is going to be fine, everything is going to be beautiful, you can translate this any ways you like. And uh, furthermore, they say, birleşe birleşe kazanacağız, we will, it, which means that we will win by uniting. Hmm. Uh, so all these actually, and also like they try to show hope, they try to show uh, less changes, less have a uh, like positive feature. Uh, so in that sense, I would say this is also reflected in the campaign process and they have a very positive campaign uh, led by the opposition. Uh, as to the as, as the presidential candidate of the opposition, Kılıçdaroğlu, I have to say that uh, he has come, uh, he has come a long way uh, to become the, uh, the 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 candidate of the United Opposition, uh, and now like he stands out as a as a, a leader with his confidence and calmness, which is like opposite of Erdogan once again, because he is very angry. He he comes with the fear rather than uh, a positive message. 
And um, so, as I said, he promises hope. Uh, he he avoids polemics with Erdogan. Uh, rather like he explains what he will do when he comes to power, what they will do when they come to power, and how they will solve the problems of the country. Uh, and I have to say that he is the architect and co coordinator of the opposition partnership that has been started uh, before the 2018 elections. And, um, and overall, what Kılıçdaroğlu is trying to do is to eliminate the social divisions, social cleavages that had divided the country for so many years and that polarized the country for so many years uh, with very clear messages. So, for instance, like he has videos that are taken in his uh, own kitchen, which is a very modest and humble kitchen, I have to say. And there he states that he's an Alevi, for instance. Uh, he embrace uh, his own identity or he make made a special video uh, for for Kurds uh, showing how this issue has been abused by the government for many years and i have to say that we have to keep in mind that the social divisions polarization has kept erdogan in power so for so many years because he has been using polarization as an election strategy as well uh, a polarization from top and uh, through which he consolidated his voters. So uh, eliminating that or like uh, avoiding that polarization will be a, a, an important, uh, it's an important part of opposition strategy. Shebnam, are there any like particular policy differences or is it just about the person of Erdogan and rescuing democracy through unity? Are there specific things that the opposition is you know, promising to do? Exactly, they have. Actually, that is also what differentiates this election uh, campaign process of the opposition from the previous ones. Uh, so this is also related to what I said before, like Erdogan has used the uh, the politics of uh, supply side. So he shaped the uh, society from top. Mm -hmm. but, and what we see is that Turkey at the moment is facing... Uh, one of the biggest social and economic crises of its uh, of of the republican history. So, in that sense, I, in that sense, I also believe that it is time for politics of demand. So, like that politics that come from the below rather than up. And I think Kılıçdaroğlu has seen this very well, and his 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 team, and they aim to respond to this demand with concrete promises. Kılıçdaroğlu, for instance, brings to the forefront. Uh, the problems such as uh, the problems that unite different segments of society that target unemployed young people, uh, that target young people who who wants to leave the country, who wants to go abroad uh, to find a life for themselves, or he targets families who cannot buy meat or milk for their kids. Um, uh, he targets so like the, he promises, for instance, this uh, the, the the family insurance, like that is like the direct money that will be given to uh, people suffer from poverty, or uh, he reminds them of the people who lost their lives in the earthquake, waiting for government to come, uh, and who died due to the inability of the government, who put incapable people in charge. So I would say like he promises meritocracy, he promises like, uh, let's say, a, a well-designed governance, which has not been there for many years. Hmm. So with concrete projects as well, I mentioned some of them, but there are many others like the, the, the creating investment, but not in the, let's say, uh, the, the 
in, 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 in new emerging sectors such as high-tech sector. So overall, I would say he's very clear. He has clear messages uh, and he tries to show that like future will be uh, much better than today and uh, particularly aims at young people, I have to say. Great. Harun, let's talk now about the uh, the Kurdish issue, which is, of course, always uh, you know a critical one in Turkish politics. And how is that playing out in this election campaign and in the opposition's efforts to unify? Um, I think there are kind of when we are thinking about the question of what is different this time. One of them is the the extent of Kurdish support for the opposition. Uh, in two thousand nine local elections, we saw that. Uh, the Kurds played a kind of significant role in uh, uh, allowing the opposition candidates in Istanbul, in Ankara, to become uh, also in Antalya, Mersin as well, to uh, gain an, a victory against uh, Erdogan. And despite and in Istanbul, Erdogan tried to, kind of, it's, it's tried to annual elections and he tried to uh, kind of uh, do it again. And however, they lost kind of twice. So this is largely owed to kind of the Kurdish voters who made the change. And this time it, look, it looks like the Kurdish question is going to play a crucial role again, because on the one hand, we can say that uh, the without the support of the Kurdish voters, it's highly unlikely for the opposition to gain a victory. And on the other hand, uh, for more than eight years, the securitization of the Kurdish questions is the end of the peace process. Is the is quite central how the government has been ruling this this country. On the on the other hand, criminalization um, of Kurdish parties uh, have been at the center of government government's past electoral strategies. So, as Lizel kind of briefly mentioned, uh, the opposition seems to uh, the sorry the government uh, tries to associate uh, opposition parties with many kind of kind of the. Uh, certain kind of outlawed groups like the Workers' Party of Kurdistan, the BKK, or Fethullah Gülen, Gülenist, or are kind of now called as the kind of FETO terrorist organization. So by using this kind of uh, kind of strategy, they have they are trying to vilify the opposition parties in the eyes of kind of average voters. And this strategy actually worked quite fine until 2019. But uh, opposition, as kind of Shebnem mentioned, uh, opposition achieved to overcome this kind of oral strategy. And while Turkish economy is failing and the government is mainly relying on providing some sort of kind of symbolic benefits to its uh, kind of the people uh, with uh, the, the nationalism is one of the main electoral strategies that the Islamist Nations Coalition is kind of been focusing on. Uh, on the other hand, when we look at the Kurdish region, we see that uh, the HDP has been kind of serious state repression in the past past seven or eight years. Uh, more than, according to figures provided by the People's Democratic Party, more than ten thousand uh, party members and executives have been imprisoned since since then, including, of course, co-chairs of the Kur pro Kurdish party. Selatin uh, Demirtas and Figen Yüksekta, in addition to dozens of elected mayors, this, of course, the for almost every, in every couple of months, the government organizes a new wave of repression to target the Kurdish movement, and that has significantly diminished the organizational capacity of the Kurdish par the party. However, I think this time 
see the Kurdish voters seem to be quite kind of uh, kind of mobilized to support their party, and uh, they 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 think they uh, when they analyze the campaigns, the elected election campaign organized by the Kurdish party, we see that uh, the there's a huge support, and the polls also seem to support the the fact that uh the these kind of the Kurdish party is going to get more than 10 percent maybe on to kind of 13 percent of the votes this is crucial mainly because the Kurdish party is also supporting the main opposition party Kılıçdaroğlu against Erdogan and uh maybe we are going to talk about this issue in this kind of in the second round but the one of the main problems right now is like 10 to 15% of people who support HDP, especially conservative Kurds, they seem to be inclined to vote for Erdogan. And convincing them to vote for Kılıçdaroğlu is a really kind of, a, might be a game changer. Uh, the, and this actually, when you look at the good party supporters, this, this is two times higher. So if opposition parties can convince their own voters to support Kılıçdaroğlu, it is going to kind of make a huge impact. So just yesterday, Selahattin Demirtas, he called for for kind of supporting Kılıçdaroğlu in the, in the elections. In 2019 elections, this a similar call made a huge difference and it uh, enabled uh, the opposition to gain a, 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 a victory in Istanbul more specifically. And I think I'm I'm quite hopeful about the uh, the, the Kurdish support for Kılıçdaroğlu. It seemed to be kind of increasing, kind of day by day. And uh, so, despite the state repression, all the, uh, the, the I think we we are going to talk about the security of elections in the Kurdish region in the second round. But the without the Kurdish, just to sum up, without Kurdish voter support, it's almost impossible for Kılıçdaroğlu to kind of secure victory. That's one thing, but the another thing is uh, the, the 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 government is on the other hand is trying to uh, arrest journalists, kind of lawyers who are mainly going to be quite kind of pivotal in provided provide providing the security of the elections. Maybe we can talk about this in the second round. Well, I think we should talk about it now because it seems like a really crucial point. And how exactly is it? That uh, that the opposition is able to overcome these this long this long you know pattern of polarization and and how do you explain this this residual support for Erdogan? I think it is the largely relies on two uh, common let's say themes that Erdogan has been exploiting in past especially in past eight years. First one is of course using religion, like for example in the Kurdish front. The, there's a kind of kind of uh, an extremist Kurdish party, like which is called Hudapar. They they only have like two hundred thousand votes, and Erdogan included them into his alliance. Uh, and he's he, he, this is one of the anti crucial tactics of Erdogan. On the one hand, he's trying to do anything he can in order to prevent uh, people from uh, being exposed to. Uh, Kind of, uh, the, the campaign of the opposition, that's, that's the main strategy that Erdogan has been using. Like by using media on the one hand, on, the, on in addition to the media, he's trying to kind of, uh, kind of prevent the, 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 the field from uh, being equal to all different political actors. That's the, the main strategy. 
And the, if you think about the elect, election day, uh, the fraud in the Kurdish region, especially in certain hotspots, has been a crucial issue. Uh, I, uh, from 2015 to 2018, I was uh, working for the pro-Kurdish party as an international relations advisor for the mayors of Diyarbakir. And I had the chance to organize international observers, independent observers. And uh, so from the field, I know that certain hotspots uh, are going to be crucial, like Shanlurfa. It has the, the, the biggest uh, number of votes are coming from that particular province. And the, the, the ruling parties have been uh, quite kind of influential in this region. And the, uh, it's the, there's, there has to be a huge kind of mobilization of kind of citizens, lawyers, and also uh, party members to protect the ballots on the election day. This is crucial. And I think we can be hopeful about this because uh, as the Istanbul elections in 2019 showed us, uh, the opposition gained a lot of experience about securing the ballots. And if they can manage to kind of implement this across Turkey this time, if they are organized well enough, uh, they will be able to prevent those kind of vote rots that happen in the election day, especially kind of in rural areas, because when you look at the Kurdish region, there are like more than 55,000 village guards who are paid by the government. And the, they have their kind of, they are already kind of militarized. And in addition to it, in the Kurdish region, the governors, uh, judges, and the also AKP party members, they are kind of very well coordinated. The, uh, and even kind of those muktars who are, ele who are elected kind of uh, representatives of, from the neighborhoods, they all work together against the opposition parties and they are getting more easily, let's say, kind of uh, organized in the Kurdish region compared to other parts of the Tur Turkey. So therefore, I think uh, it is preventing uh, those the kind of election day fraud in those, especially in those provinces that AKP gets most most of the votes is going to be kind of crucial. It's really interesting. Um, I want to switch gears just a little bit for a moment. Uh, Liesl, you've done a, a lot of your research is focused on kind of popular culture, the media. How is this playing out in, in this election uh, in terms of, you know, the, the way it's coming out on television or in popular music or anything? What, what does it look like? Yeah, so um, I think, and Harun brought this up, which I think is a really important point. I talked a little bit earlier about sort of the institutional capture, and I talked about um, the judiciary and the Supreme Electoral Council, but we really have to take into consideration the, the media access and the ways in which the incumbent has an advantage, the AKP has an advantage, not just in terms of state media and the state regulatory agency, the uh, Supreme Board of Radio and Television, or RETUK, but the influence over private media as well. So given the political economy of the media, um, you have these huge holding companies that have construction interests and banking interests and mining interests, which means that they want favors from the government, which means they own television stations and that television coverage is pro-Erdogan. And in exchange, they get you know the tender to build the bridge or they get the low interest bank loan or whatever it is. So that, that political economy of private media is shaping that disparity in media access that we were talking about. Um, so I think that kind of like the news media is, is really important. Fascinatingly, this also affects popular culture and the way in which um, sort of entertainment television is structured. So 
uh, a recent television show that the opposition has been, that even opposition top politicians have been talking about is Kuzuljuk Shadbitsi, which is cranberry sorbet. And this is a show that is really challenging sort of the ideal vision of the conservative family as, you know, the pious conservative headscarved kind of patriarchal family is happy and, and thriving. And that's the model for Turkey. Well, that, you know, the there's a character, Nursema, who's a headscarved woman in, in this particular TV drama. And she has a horrible time. And, and this is really exposing some of the problems of patriarchy and violence against women. Um, and so they're kind of problematizing this, this dynamic of the secular family is you know bad and the, the pious family is good. And so in fact, uh, there, A, there's been a ban on that particular show. So the Supreme Board of Radio and Television gave it a five week ban. They said it was because of violence against women. They don't want scenes of violence against women to be shown on television. But if you look at the AKP's policies and its withdrawal from the Istanbul Convention, which is meant to protect against violence against women, um, if you look at the number of femicides that that don't necessarily go completely punished in Turkey, this is not about not showing scenes of violence against women. It's about this problematization of, of the pious family. And so people started picking up on the Nursema character and saying, well, who would she vote for, right? Who's, who's Nursema going to vote for? Um, and if the AKP wins, well, then things are going to go bad. And if the AKP loses, then she's going to leave her abusive husband and, you know, all these changes are going to happen. So it kind of became this like focal point of, of political discourse amongst the opposition, which was really fascinating. Um, I think I, I only saw this briefly, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I think today Mansur Yavash tweeted out, um, may the 4th be with you and may the 14th be with us. So, you know, picking up on like the, the Star Wars themes of may the force be with you and then kind of twisting that around and saying may the may the fourth may may the 14th our election day be with us. So really clever, I think, use of, of pop culture. One other thing that I'll point to and Shebnam brought this up, which I think was really important, were these um, talks that that Kalipstrolu has been has been giving these YouTube videos that he's been making mm -hmm. on you know, on the, the treatment of Kurds, the, the persecution of Kurds, on him as an Alevi, which is, I think, really the, the significance of that should not be underestimated, even if it's a, you know, political engineering tool for him to say outright, I'm an Alevi, strips the AKP of its ability to continue to use that against him and kind of I don't want to say emboldens, but sort of allows Alevis who have historically been a highly stigmatized community to be more open and to kind of see themselves recognized. So I think that's really important. But from the, the kind of culture standpoint, he does this from his very humble kitchen, as Shebnam was saying, and people have started using his kitchen as their Zoom background. And they've had a fascination with the air fryer that is in the background. So the air fryer has for some reason become a topic of political conversation. So again, you know, the use of social media, using it effectively, which is actually really important to note because up until relatively recently, I wouldn't say that the CHP and some of the E party has actually been pretty good. Morale Actioner has a, a wit that has been effective on social media, but some other opposition parties have struggled. So to kind of see them hone their skills. Last night, Kalitsch tweeted, it was a four second video and he's like, eh, if you're poor today than you were yesterday, it's the fault of Erdogan. Good evening. So it's like a four second video. And all of a sudden he summed up the entire economic problem. And so people are following this and they're commenting on it. So, yeah, I would say that that media, social media, news media are playing a really important role in structuring access to, to the public, but also in kind of 
becoming these focal points of conversation and, and kind of rallying momentum. No, that's really fascinating. Um, let me, uh, one other issue that I think has come up uh, uh, in various ways that uh, we might want to look at a little bit here, Shebna, maybe you can uh, talk about this, is the lingering effects of the earthquake. And um, the, there were a lot of fears a month ago that this could lead to serious disruptions in, in the campaign. And the tar- as I think several of you mentioned this, the fear this would be used to basically disenfranchise people from those regions. Um, what have you seen in terms of how it's actually affecting the election campaign and whether those problems have been overcome? It is very difficult to assess that at the moment because like many people have been displaced from the region. Uh, so we cannot be sure about how this will change the election results. But let me say that like the region, uh, with the exception of Hatay, most of the cities that are affected by the earthquake are the major, let's say, supporters of the Justice and Development Party and the government. So uh, in that sense, like uh, the election results in the region would tell us about to what extent actually earthquake uh, affected uh, the ways in which they approach the government. But I would say that like besides the region, uh, the, the, the if we have a look at its impact on the whole population, I have to say that it's the the the, ele- the earthquake itself uh, has demonstrated the incapability of the government. So uh, when you have a regime which is only based on one man, uh, it not only makes it difficult to, uh, let's say, uh, take quick, let's say, decisions to respond to uh, a crisis in such a huge scale, uh, but also uh, it brings into, uh, into, 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 let's say, important positions people who are not, who doesn't have the merit to be there. So uh, that has been uh, very well seen by many people uh, after the elections because thousands of people they waited, uh, the, the, they waited there for more than uh, two days, three days, and nobody came for for a very long time. So this was, I would say, uh, the the major failure of this regime, and it was it was also a test for the uh, presidential system. Uh, that has been uh, put into practice, if effect by uh, the the incumbent party. Thanks. Um, one last question then uh, to Haron is the the likely effects of this election on the Kurdish issue, kind of beyond the election itself. Um, and I, you can't help but wonder. Uh, on the one hand, whether this kind of overcoming of polarization can survive the election campaign. In, in other words, is this something which is sustainable over the long run, or is it just something being done to get through this election? And should Erdogan win, you know, does he take revenge on the Kurds for their role in the uh, in, in the campaign? Mm-hmm. I think this is a really important question. Uh, when you need the opposition parties uh, worked for months to come together around a, a certain policy points, and they, one of the issues regarding this was, of course, was the Kurdish question, what they are going to do when, if they win and the, when the Kurdish question is there. The Kulishalul has clearly kind of made his stance about this. It's, he, said, he thinks that the Kurdish question, which as a kind of, uh, which is the, let's say, extension of a kind of civil war going on in the Kurdish regions since 1984, this is the second kind of longest running kind of armed insurgency in, across the Middle East. So, the, he thinks that they can resolve this issue in the parliament, uh, unlike the strategy Erdogan had used previously, like trying to talk to 
uh, imprisoned jailed leader of the Kurdish movement, Abdullah Öcalan, and also talking to directly to the PKK. And by using the Turkish intelligence for doing this, that was how the, the Turkish government or AKP government tried to deal with the Kurdish question. He thinks that this new kind of peace process has to be transparent and people should be able to kind of observe it. And uh, then the parliament can be a means to uh, bring kind of the kind of peace for the Kurdish question and also the, at the same time and they ensure democratization, pro redemocratization process in Turkey. The, on the other hand, they have clearly also the opposition mentioned that there will be no more trustees in the Kurdish kind of provinces, like the elected mayors of the, from the Kurdish region have been, uh, many of them have been either kind of imprisoned or they were replaced by AKP appointed trustees. So apart from this, maybe at this time, I think they did the right thing. Promising too much is, is like giving Erdogan more ammunition uh, to use because he's trying to create the following framing. The, you see this, the opposition, the CHP and the good party, they are in alliance with the kind of those quote unquote terrorists and you should not vote for them. They are connected with the United States. They are connected with the West. So he is, since he's relying to, relying and creating a new kind of ethno-nationalist kind of mobilization in the, during this election process, I think the opposition did the right thing by not promising too much to the Kurds. But this should be kind of, not, should not be also kind of not too, too less as well, because otherwise that, that will discourage Kurdish voters from supporting the opposition and Kılıçdaroğlu. Yesterday, uh, Kılıçdaroğlu visited the Kurdish city of Van, and for the first time, I think since late 1970s, a kind of a CHP candidate received that much kind of support, and there was a huge crowd. And of course, this crowd was kind of could happen thanks together, thanks to the the Kurdish party. Uh, but I think this this was an unprecedented thing. Like this wasn't the case, for example, in 2018. Going back to your question, what is different this time? Like the Kurdish uh, support for Kılıçdaroğlu is kind of really significant and. I think the, this is of course my kind of prediction. Uh, I think this, the, there are a lot of kind of many kind of hopes kind of increasing among the Kurds about Kılıçdaroğlu. Uh, although he was kind of quite silent about many critical kind of issues regarding the Kurds, for example, uh, the Kurdish leaders are in jail right now because the, the opposition, CHP, supported AKP's kind of bill in the parliament to kind of that, that enabled to put them in jail. So despite kind of they have left those kind of past issues behind for the elections and they have they have come together around the common cause of overthrowing Erdogan, I think it is quite, it's gonna be kind of day by day, uh, it becomes quite likely of if of course, let's say some informal mechanisms are not going to determine the, uh, the, the result of the elections. It's really fascinating. I want to thank uh, Liesl, Harun, and Shabdem for taking the time to talk with us about this election. And um, I guess we'll just at this point have to wait a week and see how things turn out. Mm -hmm.